Could we crank the tube a little bit? Yeah, sure. How's that, Mark? I'm John O'Donnell. This time 40 years ago, myself and some of my family and friends were getting ready to do the Fastnet, a 605-mile yacht race from the south coast of England to the Fastnet Lighthouse off West Cork and back. It's one of the toughest ocean races in the world. It means days at sea, often in dangerous waters and out of sight of land. At the very same time, in early August 1979, 3,000 miles to the west, a storm was passing over the United States. But it was no ordinary storm. Already, it had killed a woman in New York, and it was now heading east across the Atlantic. In a matter of days, this storm would turn the Fastnet yacht race into a disaster, leaving 21 people dead. I used to think my father Barry wanted us to sail because it was something we could do together. But maybe he'd other reasons for persuading us. Now, I had never told anybody in the family that my real ambition from the day we put up a sail was to do the fastest race. My father had no sailing background. He only started sailing in his 40s, was constantly seasick and admits he was no real use. But he read every sailing book he could and by 1979 he owned Sundowner, a comfortable 37-foot-long cruising boat with a big logo on the side. It was a smiling, setting sun because it was meant to be my last boat. As it happened, it was my last boat. There's a romance about the fastener. Even if you've no chance of winning, the challenge is to complete the course. My cousin, Johnny Delap was a fellow crew member on Sundowner. So many people who had sailed in the Fastnet before, full of stories of the excitement that they had and how satisfying it is to have completed a yacht race that's regarded as something akin to the Grand National. The Fastnet race starts from the town of Cowes on the Isle of Wight. Hundreds of boats sail around Land's End, past the Scilly Isles and head west until they reach the Fastnet Rock, about 10 miles off the Cork coast where they turn and head back east, finishing in Plymouth. Really big boats can do it in three days. Others take longer. And like the Grand National, the race includes thoroughbred racing machines as well as enthusiastic weekend sailors. In August 1979, I was 19. But my brother Nick was the youngest crew member the entire race. Age 15, I had a variety of jobs which some would have ranged from being effectively the cabin boy to the cook to helping out with the sail handling and working on the foredeck at the front of the boat. Originally, there were eight of us on board Sundowner. But the night before the race, we picked up one extra crew member in a bar. And his name was Brian Matthews. I was meant to go back to work on the Monday and I ended up on the Friday night being a uh, Ask would I sail on a boat called Sundowner. He was a merchant seaman, but he'd been at sea from the age of 18. Like the rest of us on Sundowner, though, Brian had never done a fastnet. It's hardly ideal preparation for one of the most demanding yacht races in the world. And in 1979, the fastnet was also the last race in an international yacht racing competition called the Admiral's Cup. Uh, the Admiral's Cup is a, the official sort of world championship of offshore racing. That's Neil Kenefick. Ireland put a team in, uh, consisting of three boats, 
He was on one of the boats in the Irish team, a boat called Golden Apple of the Sun, owned by the late Cork politician and businessman Hugh Coveney. John McWilliam and Hugh Coveney invited me to Cork in 1973. This is yacht designer Ron Holland. They commissioned a yacht called Golden Apple of the Sun. He named it after the Yeats poem. Hugh Coveney and John McWilliam had another idea. They printed a verse of Yeats's The Song of Wandering Angus on the boat's stern. The silver apples of the moon. The golden apples of the sun. Golden Apple was poetry in motion. In August 1979, with only the fastnet race to go, she and the other two Irish boats were leading the competition. Unlikely as it seems, Ireland was on the verge of winning, for the first time ever, what in sailing terms was the equivalent of the World Cup. Please give the competitors plenty of room. On Saturday afternoon, the 11th of August, my brother Nick and the rest of us on Sundowner were raring to go. The start of the Fastnet race is a phenomenal event. We had the buzz, the excitement, multiple helicopters, speedboats, camera crews. There's about four or five hundred boats milling around the start. Starting a yacht race is a, a complicated thing. You ultimately have a, a, a countdown timer. But there's a lot of spectator boats come out to watch this phenomenon of all starting off the one line and heading off. Your objective is to hit the start line when the clock reaches zero. We had a good breeze off the start and, you know, it was very pleasant sailing. There really wasn't a whole lot of wind. And we didn't have a particularly great start, but it's the fact that there are so many big boats all around you. It's like going out and playing a round of golf with Tiger Woods. Uh, We had great fun tacking with boats that were going to be our competitors for the next five days. We uh, We were up there with the leaders. As the fleet heads west, the big boats quickly pull ahead. The weather on the south coast of England is fine. But out in the Atlantic, the storm is steadily making its way east. On Saturday evening, we made a discovery. We had a small little incident on the way out. We ran out of gas. Uh, That's the gas to run the cooker. We were naive in in 79. We didn't know about prepping a boat for long-distance sailing. Without cooking gas, we would have no hot food for the rest of the race. There was only one thing for it. So we had to sail into New Lynn, which is in Cornwall. So we weren't allowed to use our engine. So we sailed in, dropped the anchor. If we tied up at the pier, we might have broken the race rules. So we took no chances. Early on Sunday morning, I swam ashore with a fiver and the empty gas canister, got a refill and we were on our way. During Sunday, a fog rolled in and the wind dropped, slowing many of the boats down. One of those boats was Black Arrow, crewed by members of the RAF. On board was Donal McClement. I joined the Royal Air Force and they had quite a strong sailing tradition, the Royal Air Force Sailing Association. Now I had the advantage of being a Corkman and an Irishman. I knew the waters fairly well and it was a definite advantage. I remember we were off Eddystone, south of Plymouth, when the fog cleared and we had a good trip down. At sea, information about the weather is vital. And in 1979, there was no internet. 
we just had a, a normal transistor-type radio. And I listened to the shipping forecast. The area forecast for the next 24 hours. Fairly benign. Viking, north and south Utsira, 40s. Southwesterly, fearing northwesterly. Throughout Sunday, the weather forecasts were not predicting what was to come. It was a very unusual feature in our so-called summer weather. That's Evelyn Cusack, Head of Forecasting at Met Erin. Now, obviously, it wasn't forecast, so let's get that out straight. I think Met Erin were forecasting for six, and at most there was a Gale Force 8 forecast on the periphery of it, but that, that was at the very most. It was quite a sudden storm. It's, it's what we call explosive cyclogenesis, or I think the Americans uh, now call it a weather bomb. And the pressure fell about 20 hectopascals in 6 to 12 hours. And that's what we mean by explosive cyclogenesis. So when there's a very rapid fall in pressure. And the faster the air pressure falls, the stronger the winds become. If you go back to 1979... We didn't have the ability to forecast such explosive deepening. I I won't even say a few days ahead. I mean, even, you know, 24 hours or 12 hours ahead. And even on Monday, the forecasts gave no warning of the approaching storm. Instead of listening to the radio, maybe we should have been watching what one of the instruments was telling us, the barometer. The barometer was falling so fast. My father, Barry O'Donnell. It was a pointer towards disaster weather. I'd been watching the barometer. Donald McClement. All evening and the barometer was plummeting down, the fastest drop in the barometer I'd ever seen. And the wind was getting up and up and up. This is Nick O'Donnell. We didn't know enough to know that we should trust our instruments more than we should trust what we were hearing on the radio. By lunchtime on Monday, August 13th, Sundowner is making progress past Land's End. But the bigger, faster boats, including Golden Apple of the Sun, are further out, heading for the south coast of Ireland. In that leading group, Sally O'Leary is on Yeoman 21, a 40-foot boat owned by her father. Back in the 70s, Dad would never take a woman on a boat. But he agreed in 79 that he'd take me on the fastnet. On Monday night, as Yeoman heads towards the fastnet, Sally is preparing dinner. I had taken a joint of roast beef to cook for the crew that night because you always need fresh meat somewhere along on the voyage. But by now, the wind is starting to get up. The beef was in the oven and everything was going according to plan, but I went down to check the beef, cooking, wearing my oilskins, as I always did, and as I opened the oven door... We broached. Broached is when the boat is suddenly blown over on its side. Right over, top of the mast in the water. The crew had to work very hard to get sail down. Uh, But the roast beef flew out of the oven and landed in the middle of the chart table on the other side of the boat in front of our navigator who turned round to me and he said, Sal, I think we'll put it back in the oven, turn the oven off, close the door and we'll eat it later. The storm now has a name, Low Y, and it's rapidly approaching the Fastnet Rock. Usually in the summertime, the seas are flat calm. Gerald Butler was the lighthouse keeper on the Fastnet Rock that night. There's always a heave in the water there, but as soon as the weather gets behind it, it very, very quickly gets up. The waves can become big very, very fast. The big boats were still able to handle the wind. 
At midnight on Monday, Hugh Coveney's golden apple of the sun is about to round the Fastnet Rock and head back towards England. At that point, you could hear the stones rolling down on the ocean floor and hammering off the tower. The seas would have been coming up to around 100 feet. Golden apple of the sun, and we knew the yacht so well. But I remember when it was passing. We were going well in the race with a moderately, relatively bigger, bigger boat. This is an archive recording of the late Hugh Coveney. And we rounded the Fastnet Rock just on the stroke of midnight. Neil Kennefick was on deck. It was a sea of foam. I'll never forget the loom of the light like a spoke on a wheel. It was just amazing. It really was an awesome sight because the Fastnet Rock has um, a small rock inshore of it, about a quarter of a mile, which is a very small distance at sea, and we went between, those, between the main Fastnet Rock and this rock on our land side, and there was absolute white foam. You could, we felt, almost reach out and touch the yacht. It was so close to the northern side of the Fastnet. At the helm, steering Golden Apple, was Ron Holland. Because we were very familiar with rounding Fastnet, we went right in close and cut off two or three boats before heading back towards England. Prior to coming up to the rock, the wind shifted from a southwesterly direction into a northwesterly direction, and we reckoned that that was right at the centre of the low pressure. Around Fastet Rock, we were with very big boats. We were doing well, and I understand the calculation at the rock, we were probably leading on corrected time. So once we got around the rock, the breeze then was behind us and the seas were ginormous coming in from the Atlantic. And the boat was going very, very quickly down the waves and when you got to the bottom of the wave, suddenly there wasn't a lot of wind down there because the height of the seas was sheltering the wind. If she keeps going, Golden Apple will win the Fastnet and Ireland will win the Admiral's Cup, the World Championship of Offshore Sailing. In 1979, Ireland didn't have much to cheer about. Postal strikes, petrol shortages, bombings and shootings in the north. Though at least on that Monday in August, Irish band the Boomtown Rats were number one in the UK charts with I Don't Like Mondays. And this would be a Monday we would never forget. On Sundowner, we were way behind the likes of Golden Apple. And by Monday night, we were in open water out of sight of land, with over a hundred miles to go before we'd reach the fastnet. Further west, Sally O'Leary's boat Yeoman 21 was almost at the fastnet when they tore their mainsail. Approximately five miles from the rock, it was around midnight, and the mainsail split near the top point, so we were unable to use our mainsail. We could see the loom of the fastnet, uh, I suppose, but tempting as it was to go around the rock, quite correctly, we turned around and we headed back to Plymouth. What was the sea like? It was confused. It was very confused. Um, and once we turned round, it was enormous, um, you know, and it was hard. My father had three crew on deck at any one time and two of them on the wheel helming and hard to hold the wheel. And it was at night. Then we lost the use of our own mainsail. All we had now was a small triangular sail at the front of the boat. Without realising it, we were sailing into a hurricane. Barry, the skipper, and Brian Matthews and I were huddled around the transistor radio. And Barry was pointing to his 
barometer, and he was very concerned. Six to gale eight, perhaps severe gale nine. When we heard later. the forecast, then Rain a few minutes later, he, his fears were confirmed that there was some very serious weather uh, coming into us. I was off watch. Brian Matthews. And I heard all the clattering up on deck, and it was a bit of shouting going on. And so I said, what type of wind speed have we got up there? And when they said 50 knots plus, I said, oh, God almighty, time to get all the sails down. And it took about 40 minutes to get the sail down. Wind was getting high, seas were high, uh, it's dark. Uh, but we managed to get it down, stuff it down the hatch. Brian Matthews, who was the professional seaman, said bare poles, meaning no sail at all. For Sundowner, the storm had arrived. But with no sails up, what can you do? Where can you go? You couldn't go into the wind. The wind and the sea were so rough. And so we were just running, uh, running before the wind is what they call it. Running from the wind, if you like. We tied on ropes and even a bucket and threw them over the stern so that they streamed behind the boat. When we first threw them over, you know, bucket to slow down the boat. The bucket was gone in 30 seconds, less. Even with ropes trailing behind, we had little or no control. You'd be shooting down waves uh, like on a roller coaster. It would be very similar to shooting down on a roller coaster in Tato Park or something like that. By now, we had abandoned any hope of finishing the race. And soon, we would lose contact with the outside world. Conditions even get the better of Golden Apple of the Sun. Now on its way back from the fastnet, a major piece of equipment fails. In this period, there was the uh, development of carbon fibre, which is a very high-strength, lightweight material. That's Ron Holland. We started using it in the rudders and rudder shafts. The rudder is the underwater blade attached to the wheel used to steer the boat. Material never lived up to its reputation. Crew members of Golden Apple are up on deck trying to warn Ron Holland about the waves as he battles to steer the boat through the huge seas. Several times there's a shout, big wave coming, and I'm going, bloody hell, they're all big waves. How big can this one be? We're surfing down a particularly big sea. There was a big bang. I just knew the rudder had broken. So what happens when you break your rudder? Well, first of all, you don't win the race. You can't sail efficiently. The sea conditions were so rough that we just, in the end, battened down the hatches and just gave up on trying to make the boat sail efficiently. Without a rudder, you cannot steer the boat. All you can do is float and hope you don't hit anything. But the story wasn't over yet for Sundowner it slowly became apparent that this was a case of survival. That's Nick O'Donnell. And not a case of racing. If you're in a storm at sea, you stay at sea. Barry O'Donnell again. The safest thing is to stay offshore. Out of sight of land is the best. One of our options was to find a harbour. We were thinking of heading for Cork. But you see, if you miss the mouth of the harbour, you will then be blown ashore. You lose your boat and your life. Eventually, we worked out a plan. Steer a middle course up the Irish Sea between Ireland and Wales. The weather conditions were the worst any of us had seen. The winds were rapidly changing from, say, a southerly to a westerly. Evelyn Cusack. 
So the, the waves were being whipped up and then blown a different direction. Then the wind would change and then blow that wave in a different direction. So it was the seas that did the most damage. The wind picked up maybe about 55 knots, bordering on 60. The Beaufort Wind Scale, invented by Irish scientist Sir Francis Beaufort, measures wind force in nautical miles, or knots, a knot being slightly more than one mile per hour. The last time I saw the instrument working, it was 63 knots. 63 knots on the Beaufort scale is force 11, or violent storm. The last time I saw the instrument, in one gust, it read 72 knots, which is force 12, or hurricane. And then the wind instrument stopped working. Blew away, I think. <laughs> Brian Matthews. I don't know where it went, the anonometer. It's a little like a cup thing that records wind. I don't know where that ever went to. We hadn't a clue what the uh, wind speed was after that, but I can tell by my experience that it was well over, well over force 10. That night in the, in the dark, running before the wind. That's Johnny DeLapp. With big waves coming up behind uh, some of the waves are breaking with the uh, absolute roar of water as they broke. That was frightening. There's no question. That night was very scary. But already it was clear some boats were in even bigger trouble. We saw a few red flares in the distance. That's Donal McClement on the RAF boat Black Arrow, which was still in the race. A red flare is a mayday. It's a distress, which we could do nothing about. At that stage, I'd made a decision that if, even if we had a red flare next to us, we weren't going to be in a position to, to assist because we would put ourselves at a grave risk. Out on the Fastnet Rock, Gerald Butler was also aware of how bad things were. We were listening then on the distress frequency to what was going on. We knew that um, this was going to be terrible. And we could hear some yachts had come on and say they could see flares going up east of them or west of them. They weren't in a position to do anything. If you came alongside a yacht that was in difficulty, in those conditions, it was impossible to even uh, get a line on board. Also, if a yacht did stop to help, there was every chance that that yacht was going to be capsized itself and become a victim. So you were pretty much on your own out there. And there was nothing we could do on the fastnet. Some of the most distressing things were uh, actually not what were happening on our boat, but what was happening on other boats. And listening to the radio was scary. Other yachts would come on and say, we're after passing uh, an upturned hull and um, there's no sign of life in it. We've passed an ordinary yacht just drifting aimlessly and nobody on board. And I remember one particular, I think it was a French competitor, uh, pleading for help on channel 16, the emergency contact channel on the radio. And then another one will come on and say, we're after passing a yacht and the people are hanging out over the side of it, they're just clinging on. You know you can't go outside on the rock, even if a boat did hit the fastnet. You know very well, if you stick your nose outside that door, you're going to be washed away. By Tuesday, August 14th, the Fastnet Yacht Race has prompted one of the largest peacetime air-sea rescues across 20,000 square miles. A huge air and sea rescue operation is continuing off the south coast of Ireland, where fierce storms have wreaked havoc on the more than 300 yachts taking part in the Fastnet Race. The scale of the disaster and the rescue efforts are headline news. 
all the navies, the Dutch Navy, the Irish Navy, the English Navy, uh, air forces, ships, trawlers, anything that could go to sea, went out to see who they could rescue. Shut the hatch, my father kept telling us that Monday night at sea. Shut the hatch, or else the cabin will fill with water from waves coming over the stern. And we did keep it shut, most of the time. One wave did manage to make its way down below into the cabin uh, through the main hatchway. That's Johnny DeLapp. And it wiped out the VHF radio. As a result of that, we weren't able to communicate with the world outside. When the dawn came... Brian Matthews. We had a, a good idea that this was not uh, an ordinary gale. This was something different. We had two, two people on deck uh, at each time. The rest of the crew were down below with the boat sealed to keep the water out. One of the orders we got from, from Barry, the skipper, to shut the hatch, I think he said it every time anybody went near it, even though we weren't going out. So shut the hatch was the, the motto for the boat. The, the roster was that you, you went on deck and you stood by as a lookout with your colleague for one hour, and then in the second hour you took the helm. You were steering the boat to keep her square in front of the waves with the steering wheel. After one hour of that, you were pretty well ready to go below and have a rest, and you had four hours off before you had to do that again. That was the, the watch system we had. Seas were mountainous, a bit like a semi-detach, going up the side of that, white water, the biggest fear for any of us who went on deck was of being washed overboard. Well, we had a thing called a safety harness, which is um, a web strapping with a, a tether on it, with a hook, and that's normally paid onto a safety harness point that you clip on. Everybody had to have a life jacket. That's Barry O'Donnell. If anybody was going to go overboard, there was no way in which we could even consider picking them up again. You couldn't turn the boat around. The biggest and hardest decision I think for a captain or a skipper to do is to turn the boat away from the casualty and say there's no chance now. But years ago, my uncle Billy, who ran the anchor bar in Bantry, had given us a piece of advice. Before he became a publican, he used to sail with fishermen. In bad weather, his advice was if a fisherman was working on deck, that he should have two ropes to hold him on the boat, one to either side. In addition to having their harnesses on, people who were on deck put on this piece of rope tied with a knot, a bowline knot. So certainly when I was on deck, I'd hook on my harness and take Billy's advice and put the end of a rope and tie that around myself as well. I remember thinking as I tied the knot, I really hope I've tied this right. But on Tuesday morning, our worst fears seemed realised. Quarter seven in the morning, just the two of us, the boat, out of control, uh, turned to, to port, which turned to the left, and a wave broke on top of us. The boat turned on her side, right over through 90 degrees and more, because the lockers down below had emptied, and we were just trundling around in the water at that stage. There was loads of foam and white water. The side of the boat was below the water level as the boat was slipping sideways down the side of the wave uh, and then realised that I was just outside the, the safety guardrail of the yacht. But when the boat came back upright, which is with the mast looking at the sky, the whole cockpit was full of water and all I saw was Johnny's two boots 
hanging over the top of the top guardrail, which is the safety rail that runs around the boat to keep you inside. When I opened my eyes, came up to take a breath from underwater, I felt a, something grip me. And then I jumped over and grabbed him, pulled him back in. And he said, what happened? I said, I don't know. We were soaked. But we were able to move, maneuver the boat back downwind. As we caught the next wave, it sucked all the water out of the cockpit and we were back in action. That was probably the most um, scary experience for me. And I, I certainly know that after that, I went below to my bunk. I can't remember what exactly I said to the skipper when it was next my turn to come on deck. But I did not go on deck for that watch. <laughs> in several cases, including one man who died in a similar boat to ours, was swept overboard because the clip on his harness failed. It opened accidentally. He swept overboard and they couldn't pick him up again. Later, I examined the clip on Johnny's safety harness. The force of the waves had twisted the clip open. If it hadn't been for Brian and my Uncle Billy's bowline knot, Johnny would be gone. I often wondered what went through Johnny's mind as he slid into the waves. For that moment when you were over the side, in the water, a huge wave crashing on top of you, can you remember what you were thinking? Did you think this might be it? You don't think about things like that. Sundowner was one of hundreds of boats now at the mercy of the storm Low Wai. Late on Tuesday afternoon, help arrived for Golden Apple, which had drifted dangerously close to the Silly Isles. So a Royal Naval helicopter came overhead. That's Neil Kenefick. And they said, look, we advise you guys to uh, get off the boat. This is Ron Holland. Because... It's evening coming. We're not going to come back and get you. So this is your chance. If you want to leave the boat, you've got to do it now. The forecast was suggesting that there was another low-pressure building. So after a bit of a discussion, Hugh decided, OK, we'll, we'll take a ride of the helicopter. The helicopter pilot said, the way I'm going to do this is you need to get into the raft so that I pick you up off the raft rather than off the boat with the mast waving around. The crew were about to do the last thing any sailor wants. To leave your own yacht is always a, a big question, but we left it with the knowledge that there was a Royal Naval helicopter overhead to take us. We pull the raft out of the locker where it's kept, and it's sitting on deck, and we're going, hang on, we pull the string on this raft and it pumps up. We're never going to keep it on the boat. And there was a big discussion about, you know, you pull the string. Oh, no, no you pull the string. <laughs> and sure enough, we pull the string, the bloody raft fl flicks over the side. A life raft is like a paddling pool with a cupboard on it. The life raft was very, very um, flimsy. I wouldn't like to spend a lot of time on it. They say you should only ever step up into a life raft. Getting off the boat into the raft was certainly the most crazy thing I've ever done. I mean, I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. We're getting off a perfectly safe boat into this raft, which wasn't fully inflated. And we're all in the raft, up to our armpits in water, that the helicopter came down at an angle and blew the boat away from the raft. And that was very impressive. 
because otherwise the mast would have got tangled in the uh, helicopter wire that we were going to be retrieved by. Wingman came down on the cable from the helicopter and suddenly you were at the level of the man on the wire and suddenly you were 40 feet below him. So the timing to get onto that wire and then be hauled up and then the noise of the sea, the noise of the helicopter. There were 10 of us there and it took roughly about three minutes a man to get everyone into the helicopter. And suddenly you were just thrown into the floor of the helicopter and said, God, I'm alive. But in the helicopter, the pilots and the crew tell us, do you realize how serious this is? People dying, drowning. We had no idea that there was so much trouble. And the helicopter pilot had some other news. He kept the door open and said, we're very, very low on fuel and we've got to land in St. Martin, which is the most northern of the Scilly Islands. The helicopter had been in the air for hours, flying back and forth, assisting stricken sailors. And when it landed in St. Martin, the pilot had a job for his passengers. There was a Land Rover there from the Royal Navy with, I think, 20 10-gallon drums. We literally got out of the chopper ourselves and manhandled some of the diesel cans to fill her up through funnels. We were then brought to Coldrose and landed there. And the most bizarre thing I recall, they said, you've got to get into pyjamas and get into bed. We go, hang on a minute, there's nothing wrong with us. Oh no, protocol. And we've just had news that the crew of the Irish yacht Golden Apple in the Sun are safe and are at Culdrose in Cornwall. Back now to Leo Enright. Thank you, Anne. And later in the programme, should the tragic fastnet race be abandoned? One observer says the survivors can't stop now. But Sundowner was still at sea. And with our radio wiped out, our family back in Dublin had no way of knowing whether we were still alive. For us, as well as the roar of the wind and waves, there was another stranger sound. One of the most terrifying things I remember was hearing a whistle every time we went over a wave. My father asked Brian Matthews what it was. And I said to him, what's that whistle? And he said, that's the keel vibrating. The keel is the long fin bolted onto the underside of the boat. If it vibrates for long enough, of course, it would come off. The boat was without a keel had no chance in that confused sea. Without a keel, the boat would capsize like a bathtub toy. We had no radio and no idea what was happening around us. Barry was the owner and the skipper. That's Brian Matthews. At some stage during the storm, I went down to make a, a chicken sandwich, I remember, and he did refer to his wife Mary at the time that she looked great in black, and I said, she won't be everywhere in black, don't worry. We're going to get through this. Did you believe we were going to get through it? Yeah. By lunchtime on Tuesday, we were exhausted. We tied the wheel, allowing the boat to drift on the now calmer seas. We went below decks and lay in boots and soaking oilskins, waiting for the storm to subside. By now, the storm low Y had almost blown through. The swell was still there, huge, huge swell, but no breaking sea at this stage. Very, very, very um, uncomfortable. A lot of the crew were seasick especially the people down below. Um, we hadn't really been able to navigate that accurately for about 30 hours. We 
turned the engine on, and never was I so relieved to hear the engine start the first time. We motored north. Later, on Tuesday night, we picked up the loom of the Tusker Lighthouse, off Wexford. And in the early hours of Wednesday morning, we arrived in Rosslare Harbour. When we eventually put in as an emergency into Rosslare, there were two other boats that had been very badly damaged, including one boat which had lost a member of the crew. As the sun came up, couldn't wait to get off the boat, almost like the Pope kissing the ground on arrival, glad to be back on land, we walked to the large local hotel, quarter of a mile up the road or something. And it was the same weekend that the Carnsore nuclear power rally was being held. So we tried to knock on the door of the hotel. The night porter wouldn't let us in because he thought we were nuclear rally protesters. He was surprised to see nine people in oilskins arriving at about 5.30 in the morning. After a while, the hotel porter relented. But reluctantly agreed to let our dad in to make one phone call. My father called my mother. I said, hi, we're in Rosslare. What? Are you all there? And I said, yeah, no injuries, nothing, no damage. And she said, I'm coming down. And I said, don't, don't bother, because I said, we're all here. And she didn't believe me or whatever. She wanted to see the boys anyway. Later, there was an inquiry. There was a very good uh, Royal Ocean Racing Club inquiry and a lot of lessons learned. The inquiry whitewashed a lot of it, but they had to. They had to pull their punches. They couldn't be critical of Mr Joe Public, who went of his own volition to race in the fastest race. But the fact of the matter is that a large number of the boats were totally unprepared. Uh, I think all the investigations afterward found that the safety standards weren't as high as they should have been and hadn't been updated over the years. As a result, new rules and regulations were introduced. Perhaps the principal safety recommendation they came up with was under no circumstances leave your boat. So many who died had got into life rafts and were lost from life rafts. The, the, the phrase came out then, you don't step down to your life raft, you step up. You only get out of the boat if your own boat is sinking. They also had an experience clause that you had to do X amount of miles at sea in one, one go before you could enter. But I think sailing and ocean racing is a lot safer now as a result of the fastness race. But could a disaster like this happen again? You know, I'm reluctant to say, no, it can never happen again. Evelyn Cusack again. But I would hope it never would. And there's been huge developments in meteorology. In fact, even since 1979, you could say there's been a quiet revolution in meteorological science, in our understanding of the atmosphere. I think the weather forecasts are much better now. That's Sally O'Leary. And I think you can never say never, but I think we know a lot more about the state of the sea and the weather much earlier than we did back in 79. Sally O'Leary's boat, Yeoman 21, made it back to Plymouth. And Black Arrow, with corkman Donald McClement aboard, not only finished the race, but won its class. Three months after the disaster... In November 1979, the Royal Ocean Racing Club organised a memorial service in London. My father attended on behalf of Sundowner. He kept a note. We sang lustily, O God, our help in ages past, 
And listen to Psalm 107. They that go down to the sea in ships. Admiral Sir Maurice Lang said in a thoughtful address that many of those at sea that night wished to speak to the Lord but were unaccustomed to doing so and perhaps a little uncertain of how to address him. People were lost under various difficult circumstances. It could very easily have been one of us. We were certainly grateful for being spared. Fifteen sailors and six spectators from two boats following the race died in the 1979 Fastnet. Of the over 300 boats that started, only 86 boats finished. 24 were abandoned and five boats were lost, believed sunk. And yet thousands of sailors still longed to do the Fastnet. We sailed the Fastnet two years later. We weren't in the winner's enclosure, but we completed it. Some people can't get enough of it. Once the salt water gets in your blood, it stays there. Uh, I've gone on to do nine other fastnets. Every second year, the boats will sail around the starting area, waiting for the gun that signals the beginning of the race. Like all of those who sailed in 1979, the sailors will sniff the salty breeze and hope they and their boats are ready for the wind and sea and whatever else may come their way. I love it. And that's all you can say. Shut the hatch. <laughs>